My name is Peter Fines. I'm the author of Oak and Ash and Thorn, The Ancient Woods and New Forests of Britain. I became involved with these islands having met a man called Robert Window, an author who has written a book called The Last Wolf of England. We gave a talk together in a bookshop in Notting Hill about Englishness and the landscape of Britain. His fascinating thesis is that the wolf has altered irrevocably the landscape of Britain and therefore our character because the destruction of the last wolf in the year 1290 meant that the sheep could flourish and the British developed into the people they are. So through Robert, I met the people who run these islands and they asked me to contribute something to their website. I gave them a chapter called The Word from the Woods. I selected this chapter because it's a history of Britain's woods from the year 5000 BC to now. And I thought it demonstrated perfectly the way that, of course, trees, woods, forests, nature itself has no understanding, recognition of borders and boundaries other than the natural geographic ones, which in our case on these islands is the sea. So I tried to find a way to write a history of these islands that would cut out humanity. That's, of course, impossible because everything we've done has affected the woods in an enormous way. I chose the moment when Britain becomes an island, which is about 7,000 years ago. Starting in the year 5000, as the waves rose and the ice melted, Britain becomes an island. I think the Dogger Bank was the last bit, was probably sludge for a few hundred years, but then that disappears. There are 26 species of trees, we believe, marooned on these islands. There's a theory that the box tree was the last one over. It's a random, arbitrary selection of trees. It's the ones that happen to have travelled north fast and far enough to be here when the waters rose. The sycamore, for example, was not here but the beech tree probably was. Arguments still rage amongst academics whether it's 26 or 28 species, uh, or indeed what a species is. For the first few thousand years, there were people here, of course, stranded, but also traveling by boat. People and trees living together, we probably like to think in harmony. The woodland cover of the British Isles was about 50% when the islands were formed. And in the next couple of thousand years, that rose to about 90% woodland cover. So Britain was literally a forest for several hundred years. Then slowly but surely, people got busy. The human population rose, they made clearings, agriculture spread, the Bronze Age arrived, new tools became available. And slowly but surely, the forests were eroded. I struggled to find things to write about the early years because wild aurochs and wolves and bears roam the forests and not a lot happens except that nature is always in flux and always changing. But the speed with which it accelerates from the Iron Age onwards, which is about 800 BC, is startling. And of course, from our perspective, all the events we know, these are the kind of thing that would normally have prominence in history. Whereas for me, they were the last few hundred words of my 3,500 word history. It all happens at an extraordinary rate, particularly when the Romans arrived and then the Saxons were ferocious forest clearers. By 1066, when William the Conqueror arrives, it's about 20% forest cover. Then that plunges again rapidly, around about the year 1200 to 1300, with more intensive agriculture, the arrival of the sheep, the great destroyer of forests, the destruction of the wolves meant that the sheep could flourish and spread. So we got down very quickly in about the year 1300, about 6% forest cover. And we've been at that pretty much ever since. And in fact, in the last 50 years, we've increased our forest cover. So we're now at about 13%.
we're sitting in my kitchen in South London near Clapham Common. My dog is also in the kitchen. She's a rather messy black labradoodle with plenty of grey. She is called Bonnie and she came with me on most of my walks around Britain. It's a cold, sunny January day. The kitchen is south-facing. There's lots of light streaming in. The cat's prowling around in the garden. I can see two horse chestnuts, no leaves on them, of course. And beyond that, there will be Clapham Common, where I generally take my dog for a walk. There's some magnificent lime trees in Clapham Common, horse chestnuts, and particularly London Plain, which is one of my favourite trees. It's not a native British tree, which is something that agitates some people, but it's done quietly heroic work for all of us for centuries now since it was first introduced because people have discovered that it's unparalleled at soaking up pollution. It has a unique anti-pollution method or measure, which is that it sheds its bark whenever it gets too toxic or diseased. So it resists as best it can the diesel outpourings that it encounters in every city. And it's why you'll see London planes planted, not just in London, obviously, but all over the cities of the UK. I wrote about Clapham Common in my book. It's vitally important, I think, to stress that nature is everywhere and not something that's just out there that we might want to visit on the odd random day. In 2010, the government was planning to sell off the national forests. And I think at the time I had no idea there actually was such a thing as a national forest. But like millions of others, I was outraged by the idea that we should be selling off our forests. So the idea crept into my head a few years later that I should go and see what was going on in our woods. I grew up in Kent and Sussex, surrounded by woods on the fringes of London, but there were deep woods in Sussex still then, as there are now. And I wanted to know what was happening. Everything I ever heard about them seemed to be bad news. They always seemed to be under threat from golf courses or development or climate change or something. So I just wanted to go and reconnect. So I spent a year in the woods. I read about the fairy tales, the history of woods and the legends and the myths, and also the current day conservation challenges. I came back from that year and I wrote this book. For the last 50 years, there's been, well, more than that, the Forestry Commission was formed in the year 1919, straight after the First World War, when there'd been a terrible shortage of pit props and timber generally for the war effort. And Britain was denuded. We were 6% tree cover. What was left was more or less a mixture of plantation woods, which are the imported spruce and larch and so on, conifers, basically, and genuine ancient woodland Ancient woodland is something that's been around since the year 1600 in England and Wales. If it was there in 1600, it was probably there at the last ice age. Since then, we've destroyed our ancient woods. They're about 2% of the woodland cover now. And the Forestry Commission was founded in an attempt to reforest Britain. So we would always be self-sufficient in wood from now on. They've never succeeded in doing that. It's a preposterous idea because we import timber. That's fine. We should import less timber than we do. We're the second biggest importer of timber in the world currently, after China, I think. We have very few forests, basically. The European norm for woodland cover is about 30 to 40 percent. We are, as I said, up to about 13 percent now. Since 1990, the Forestry Commission has been planting conifer plantations everywhere, which conservationists are horrified by because they're these blocks of industrialised conifer rows, which are bleak and dark inside and no one likes them. 
but they blanketed Northumberland and then beyond with these conifer forests. And we managed to get, mostly through those efforts, up to 13% woodland cover. In the last 30 to 40 years, there has been a fight back against these conifer plantations. In fact, there hasn't been a new one planted for many, many years. People have been planting broadleaf native woodland trees, mostly since then so what we have is a mix of broadleaf and conifer plantations and a small amount of ancient genuinely ancient woodland left there have been two extraordinarily exciting recent announcements for new forests first of all at the end of 2017 the government announced they were going to plant a vast new forest in northumberland the first new forest that has been planted by the government for 30 odd years it's predominantly for forestry it's vast it's going to take them three years to plant it's going to be a mix of forestry and amenities people are much more sensitive now to what a forest should be but there is a genuine timber need so the foresters will be allowed their timber so that's one announcement then only six weeks later the government announced they were planting led by the woodland trust a vast coast to coast forest the great northern forest which is stretching from Hull in the east to Liverpool in the west, following the route of the M62. 50 million trees, I know that for sure. But this is going to take 25 years to plant. And the government, although it's making a great announcement about it, is only priming the pump with a £5 million investment. This whole forest is going to cost over half a billion eventually to create. But it's a thrilling idea. Oliver Rackham, the great woodland conservationist, said that when you're talking about tree planting, you've basically failed as a conservationist because what we're doing is planting these new forests and it's very exciting. But nonetheless, it means we're not looking after what we already had. We've largely destroyed what we already have and HS2 is going to destroy another 90 ancient woodlands. So the Woodland Trust, while leading the push to create this exciting new forest, is also fighting against the destruction of the last few ancient woods. The great new northern forest will be modelled on a medieval forest in the sense that it's not going to be a continuous canopy of trees stretching from coast to coast, but it will be clearings, moors, parks, and in fact incorporating villages, towns and cities. The trees are going to be planted in the centre of Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester and Liverpool, as well as broadleaf forests outside the cities and it's a really exciting chance to connect 13 million people who live in that area to forests, woods and nature. The ancient forests before the year 1600 were of course predominantly native broadleaf species, the 26 species that were marooned here when the ice melted. My book is called Oak and Ash and Thorn which is after the Kipling poem, Surely We Sing of No Little Thing when we speak of oak and ash and thorn. So they're all ancient British, English trees, steeped in poetry, of course, but also myth, magic. There are all sorts of associations. I believe there's more magic associated with the ash tree than there is with any other tree. It was believed that if you passed your ailing sick child through a cleft of the ash tree, it would cure it. But also it was tremendous for curing warts, the ash tree. In Cheshire, I think you had to wrap bacon around a wart and then put it on the tree and then that would miraculously somehow cure it. You should never fall asleep under a hawthorn on Midsummer's Eve, otherwise the fairies with a dangerous Middle E fairies would come and spirit you away. But also if you bathed in the dew in the morning in springtime, 
underneath an old hawthorn tree. If you're a fair maiden, it would make your complexion perfect. There are all sorts of magic associated with them. The oak is the iconic British tree, the iconic English tree. Writers and poets over the centuries have got confused about whether it's British or English. There are two species of native oak in this country, the sessile oak and the pedunculate oak. One tends to flourish more in the south and the east. That's the pedunculate oak, and the sessile is more at home in the north and west, particularly Wales. They are different. They're fairly easy to spot. The pedunculate oak's acorns are suspended at the end of long stalks, and when the leaves are out, they have hairless twigs and deeply lobed leaves carried on short stalks. Where the sessile oak, which grows in the north, its leaves are larger, the lobes are shallower, and the stalks are longer. I came up with a little mantra to help you remember. Deep, southern and hairless, shallow, northern and hairy. Although to confuse everyone but the most dedicated naturalist, the two often breed and create hybrids. The oak has always had iconic status for us. It's Tennyson and his hearts of oak and the sailors roaring behind their wooden walls. And the wooden walls of Britain were what kept us safe. King Alfred, of course, started the first navy of England and built it with English oak. And there was an idea born at that time that if you had English oak, your ships would be stronger, almost unsinkable, and none of this suspicious foreign oak that might have been imported. And during the Napoleonic Wars, we cut down unfeasibly huge quantities of oak tree to feed our navy. It destroyed great numbers of our woods. Again, they wanted to use English oak because they believed that that would make their navy stronger. But in the end, we actually ended up importing a large amount of Swedish oak or capturing French ships and using them. Nonetheless, there's an idea ingrained in us that there's something mystical about the oak. We cleave to it as a national symbol, and the Conservatives, of course, used it as their brand. I think when they rebranded, they wanted to convey the impression that they are timeless and they're conserving things. You can see why they did it. Britain is unusual in that it has more ancient trees left than anywhere else in Europe, and yet it has far fewer woods. So at some point, we've managed to destroy all our woods and yet somehow conserve these extraordinary ancient trees. By way of an example, I think there are over a thousand ancient yews in Britain and only about a hundred across the whole of the rest of Europe. We've got over 120 ancient oak trees. This is genuinely old oak trees in Britain. And there's fewer than that in the whole of Europe. For some mysterious reason, we've managed to destroy the woods but keep the ancient trees. There are various theories for this. Some have suggested it's because we love nature more, which I find hard to believe. Another theory is that our ancient religion, when we worship trees, might still be deeper within us than it is across the rest of Europe. I don't think that's true, obviously, but it's true that the yew trees often predate the churches in the yards in which they sit. The early Christians built the churches next to the yew trees, which were already being used as sites of worship in order to absorb the pagan worshippers. And it was a very successful way of converting the country to Christianity, which is why you'll find so many large ancient yew trees growing in our churchyards. It's possible that's true, although again, this is true for most of Europe. So it is slightly perplexing. It's possibly to do with the fact that we have a history of common land the Europeans don't have a similar history to us, but I like to believe that at some point the people who lived near the trees and the woods and had access to those trees and woods to use them for fuel 
and small amounts of timber would have protested if one of their favourite ancient trees was about to be chopped down. It's a fanciful thought. It's more likely that what we're looking at today in Britain is a parkland, an aristocratic landscape. All those capability brown landscapes loved an ancient tree sitting in the middle of a park. The woods were cleared away. And of course, it coincides with our love of oak and our belief that it was somehow emblematic of the nation. There are other theories. It's possible that we're more scared of the woods than other nations, so we've converted our land to parkland. It's also possible, the final theory, that it's just not true. We obsessively count our trees, and in fact, only last year, or 2016, 100 ancient oaks were found in Blenheim Park, out of nowhere. Where have they been lurking all this time? So it's possible that we're obsessively counting them, whereas in France and Germany and Italy, they have so many they don't bother to look. When the waters rose and Britain became an island, there were roughly 26 species of trees left on these islands. For hundreds, thousands of years, that remained so, but people started to introduce tree species. The sycamore arrived in about 1500 and something, I believe, from France. It's a completely random fact that it wasn't here already. It must have just been slightly slow to the White Cliffs of Dover when the rest of the trees were scampering over. And since then, it has spread vigorously. It obviously feels extremely at home in this country, and most people wouldn't have a clue that it didn't belong. It's a beautiful tree with its lovely pink bark. The older it gets, the more glorious it becomes. So it seems very at home, and it seems wrong to get agitated about its presence, but people do. If you walk the woods of Britain, you will find many signs up saying from the National Trust and others, quite admirably, I understand what they're doing, they will say, we are restoring these woods to their natural state, what they would have been before people got so busy, and we are clearing these woods of the larch and the spruce and the conifer and the sycamore because it's not natural. But I think there's an interesting debate to be had about what is actually natural. We're going to find, as the climate changes enormously and convulses, that we need trees that are adaptable. It's going to become nonsensical, our obsession with native trees, in 100 years' time, because we will find that the trees that are currently native are not best suited to a climate that's going to be more like the south of France, but more violent. So I think we need to somehow incorporate a different style, a different method of planting that is adapted to the climate change. I think most conservationists are aware of this, but it's difficult for them because they do want to conserve what should be there. There have been some wonderful tree planters over the centuries, but one of the most extraordinary is a recent one, which is Felix Dennis, the hard-living publisher who died a very few years ago, but in, I think, 2003, he planted the first tree in something that he then called the Forest of Dennis, because he never did anything by halves. He found a site near the old Forest of Arden, Shakespeare's forest, which was long since destroyed by the Saxons, and he started planting native broadleaf trees with the intention of creating the biggest native broadleaf forest in Britain. And he's well on his way. Since he's died, they've planted, I think, over a million trees. Their aim is to get three million trees, covering 30,000 acres. And it's a beautiful place. It's existing forests, small patchworks of existing woods, 
low-value agricultural land that they were planting with trees, and they've left some as meadow and wildflower places. It's absolutely gorgeous. If you walk there in the spring, you will see the wildflowers growing and all those little saplings, their little plastic sheaths, all looking so optimistic. It's an enormously hopeful place and very moving. At the centre of it, there's this vast statue of Felix Dennis himself, made out of resin, holding a resin oak sapling, gazing out. One of his poems is there, which I think is rather lovely, which I ended the main part of my book with. It's in a chapter called This Wood is My Wood. The poem says, Whosoever plants a tree winks at immortality. And we can all agree on that, I hope, I write.